0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, has Congress ceded its authority on foreign policy matters to the executive branch that has placed the republic in a precarious situation for which there is no return? To answer this question, I'm joined by Michael Hanlon of the Brookings Institution, and Sam Berger from the Center for American Progress. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. A key pillar in America's democratic, republic form of government is the notion of separation of powers controlled by three co-equal branches of government when it comes to foreign policy, the president sits alone. Whether wittingly or unwittingly, the legislative branch, Congress, has ceded a large portion of America's foreign policy interests to the executive branch, the presidency. Is the current trajectory, which has been decades in the making, healthy for the sustainability of the republic? If not, is there anything Congress can do? To begin the conversation, I'm joined by Michael O'Hanlon. O'Hanlon is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution located in Washington, D.C. Michael O'Hanlon, welcome back to the Public Reality, sir.
1: It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on.
0: First of all, let's begin. Do you hold to the notion that since the advent of the, the modern pre- presidency, which I'm beginning with Franklin Roosevelt, the Congress has ceded a large portion of the foreign policy responsibility to the executive branch.
1: I think that's true, although I'm not sure it was intentional. So uh, the only caveat, or maybe not a caveat, but an addition I might make to your point, is that some of it happened um, almost subconsciously or by accident or inadvertently. uh, But that has been, I think, very clearly the net effect, yes.
0: Mm -hmm. Anything you want to say specifically when we talk about the inadvertent actions of Congress or... It was just something that just methodically happened over time.
1: Well, we wound up playing a role in a world where quick response was seen as necessary. And, of course, the the big example is the Korean War. You know, the Korean War was not a declared war. In fact, there was not even a resolution in Congress to authorize it because it was described by President Truman, who most people think of as a pretty good president, as a police action. And then it was approved through the U.N. because the uh, Soviets and Chinese basically did not exercise their vetoes at the Security Council. The Chinese had just uh, taken over, the Communists had just taken over in Beijing. And the the Soviets uh, uh, protested and, and avoided the U.N. vote. And so we got a U.N. vote, which we sort of treated as a substitute for a declaration of war in what seemed like a very necessary action. And even if you can understand in the time that that happened, why the sequence of events uh, was such as it was, the net effect was for Congress to get out of the habit of declaring even big wars. And in this case, they didn't even authorize it. And also in Vietnam, the closest they came to authorizing the Vietnam War in Congress was the so-called Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which arose after a limited naval skirmish, uh, in a place where you know the Vietnamese Navy obviously could never have really challenged our Navy, so this wasn't really the heart of the matter. We were essentially giving President Johnson authority to respond to that kind of thing, and it wound up leading to half a million U.S. troops deployed in Vietnam with no serious debate about that conflict. So a lot of it was this new global leadership role in the face of a communist threat in the context of the Cold War in a world where the United States had decided after the World Wars we couldn't just – you know, leave European and Asian powers to sort out their problems on their own because we had tried that twice before and we got World War One and World War Two. So that's the context. And therefore, it wasn't really a deliberate decision by anybody to say, let's go ahead and give the president all this power. It was the way events unfolded in what was seen as a very dangerous and fast-moving world.
0: Mm-hmm. And and then uh, you you mentioned President Johnson and uh, I, I would also add President Nixon those two... And the actions of those two, uh, I think, uh, prompted uh, Arthur Schlesinger to write the imperial presidency, um, sort of forewarning them, then Watergate happened. So I don't know if this applies in terms of foreign policy, but Congress does sort of pull the reins a little bit post-Watergate. But by and large, has it not been an unhealthy benefit of the doubt?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think it's, you know, I actually think it's a little better today, uh, to be honest. I know there are some people who have said that the erosion has just continued forever. And the latest example is the 2001 AUMF, the authorization on the use of military force that President Bush got from Congress within a couple weeks after the 9-11 attacks, uh, which were construed as allowing the president to go after the perpetrators of that attack whenever and wherever he so chose. And here we are almost 20 years later using that kind of authority in places like not only Afghanistan, but, you know, Syria or Iraq or um, Somalia when we do these limited strikes. But, you know, I still think that as much as perhaps we are due for another AUMF, that those kinds of attacks are generally within the spirit of what was intended by Congress in 2001. And they're on a scale that is consistent with what was intended. So I'm not as troubled by that as I am by the Korea and Vietnam examples, and that's why I'm still hopeful that maybe we're moving in the right direction. People will say, "Well, what about the invasion of Iraq or the Operation Desert Storm?" But in fact, Congress did act for both of those. It acted without a declaration of war, but it had a big debate, uh, bipartisan or you know bipartisan vote in both houses of Congress in support. It's not clear if either President Bush would have been hindered in his plans had Congress said no. But the fact of the matter is that Congress said yes. And and so um, in that regard, maybe we've made just a wee bit of progress. But I think we are due now for a more fulsome debate on the AUMF and whether we need a new authority, a new way of thinking about these ongoing forever wars. Mm.
0: Well, but your last statement sort of prompted me. Uh, the, how would you respond to someone who might say, well, what about the War Powers Act, the way that's written that, a war is pretty much baked in before Congress can even get around to debating it.
1: Yeah, I don't really like the War Powers Act that well, um, you know, and no one else does either for that matter. I was going
0: to say, before, <laughs> before we're a name dropping, could you quickly explain what the War Powers Act is and then...
1: Yeah, basically it says the president, it was passed right after Vietnam and in the context of Watergate, and it basically said a president needs permission from Congress within two months of starting hostilities. And I think that's what you were alluding to, that point that the war could be baked in before Congress is even required to act. And not only that, you could actually have a nuclear war before Congress (laughs) acted. I mean, you know, um, in this day and age, the idea of allowing for a two-month ramp-up seems quite anachronistic. And I guess the Congress of the early 1970s must have been thinking about the way that Vietnam sort of – Was a slow roll into conflict. It began as a small advisory mission in the early 1960s. Essentially, actually, you know, of course, the French had been there even earlier, and we had been watching Vietnam in the 50s. Uh, But then we gradually ramped up um, in starting in the Kennedy years, but especially in the Johnson years. And so, you know, uh, there were a couple of years, two or three or four years, when Congress could have debated and acted and maybe that's the conflict people had in mind, but I'm concerned about, you know, what if there's a Korean War? That's going to be a conflict where much of the action happens within those first two months, uh, for example. And so I don't like the idea of giving a president two months of a head start before he needs permission. I think that's a major flaw. Now, presidents of both parties, even ones who have been senators, previously and, and therefore maybe had a different view when they were in Congress Presidents tend not to like it because they see it as an unconstitutional check on their powers as commander-in-chief. you know it's one of those old things that um, where you stand depends on where you sit and so even someone like President Obama, you know a, a scholar of constitutional law and a former senator, um, he didn't seem to really feel like he had to go to Congress to comply with the War Powers Act. his lawyers said that the Libya operation was so small back in 2011 that it didn't even qualify as a war. That's another frequent excuse that presidents use. But when you wind up overthrowing a foreign head of state, uh, I don't see how you view that <laughs> as, as a conflict that's so small that it doesn't require congressional authorization. Uh, but again, presidents tend to want to expand their powers and not let Congress have a role. And then you know Congress inevitably must have a role when it passes appropriations bills, leave aside the War Powers Act. When Congress, is, co- Congress funds something, even after the fact, it's essentially, at that point, uh, forced to either bless or stop an operation. And, uh, you know, but once troops are engaged in the field, it's a lot harder just to stop the operation and pull them home. So they tend not to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, as, as we see with um, Afghanistan and Iraq, it's always easier to start the war than it is to end it. Uh, yep. Is, is there an inherent flaw in our democratic republic form of government in that there's an implied assumption that this will work, this project, American Experiment, can work because those of us involved in it want it to work? Mm-hmm. Have, have, we, have we relied on that notion too much or is that even a notion?
1: Well, I think you're right that if you don't, I mean, the way I would put it uh, to build on your uh, very uh, eloquent phrasing is that if we don't have people in the Congress who are willing to work across the aisle and sometimes in support of a president from the other party, then we are not going to have good decision making on the use of force. Because when those moments arise, you've got to stop thinking about your own political future or your party's future and view this as you know, a fundamental moment. Uh, perhaps even of survival, but certainly of momentous decision for the republic itself and um, and I worry for example, that on the War Powers Act debate that a lot of people today would have a hard time separating what they think of of a new legislation a new a new vehicle for continuing limited operations in the Middle East from what they think about President Trump or president obama and uh, and so in that regard, I think our democracy um, you know is not quite as strong as I'd like. But, you know, I'm not that nostalgic for the Cold War or for earlier periods either, because like I said, I think the worst abuses of this whole notion of separation of powers when it comes to war and peace, I think the worst abuses were Korea and Vietnam, not Iraq or Afghanistan or anything else this century. And so um, in that regard, I'm not going to wring my hands too much about the demise of our democratic experiment in recent years. I think we've always had challenges, with this sort of thing, you know, we have McCarthyism in the Cold War. Anybody who was was trying to think twice about do we have to really fight the communists here and there and everywhere was often portrayed as weak or, or unpatriotic. So it's always hard to make this right, and it gets to your point about you know, do we rely too much on sort of the better angels of our nature? I guess I just don't see the alternative. I don't see um, I don't see what system would work better. So the only thing I might. Suggest is you know we, we we might need a little different type of personality running for public office sometimes, mm-hmm. and um, and maybe we're not finding enough ways to get you know our teachers and our policemen and our you know clergy and our scientists running for Congress, and it's more the you know the, the, the people who maybe are too personally ambitious frankly um and you know ambition's part of politics you're not going to take that away but maybe we need a little broader mix of people and maybe that would be one way to address your concern
0: yeah right i mean there's not a plethora of people who at the brookings institute that i last checked that are that are vying to uh seek uh uh the congress you know I, which i don't blame them
1: <laughs> right well I, you know i don't know how you uh, you're right but i don't I, I mean i don't know how you'd even do it out of a place like brookings you know it's um <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I thought about it myself, but I, I think I'd be a pretty bad politician. But uh, for one thing, I'm not really needed in the part of Maryland that I live. There's a very good congressman. And, uh, you, you know, I, I think some of the uh, some of the challenge here is like you are alluding to. It's for somebody who's got a job, you know, making an OK income, but not rich. Uh, how do you fund a campaign and how do you um, go on the road, you know, and sort of give up your life? I mean, there are these kind of challenges that are associated with political office. So I do have respect for the people who do it because there are some huge burdens on on them. But on the other hand, you know, you don't just want the wealthy or the well-connected to run. And so maybe campaign finance is part of where you start this process.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Finally, given where we are right now, and um, I I think that you, you make great points about Korea, Vietnam in particular, but given where we are right now, should we... If you look at the actions of the current administration okay. and I, we've had you on uh, several times in the public rallies so I know and you've expressed concerns when you've had them about some of the actions of this of, of this president but given where we are right now, should we look at this president as an outlier uh, or should there be some action taken if any um, for some recalibration knowing to your earlier point today that that whoever comes in after President Trump, if it's four years later or or two years later, no one's going to just give up that power in the executive office. They've already had it. So I was, that, that's a right. lot, but I'll, I'll let you tackle it.
1: Well, two things I'll respond to. One, I could imagine just a revision to the 2001 legislation, the authorization on the use of military force, and the revision could require that the president uh, have a certification from the director of national intelligence. That wherever and whoever he's going to war against, on the grounds this somehow is an affiliate of Al Qaeda, the, the head of our intelligence would have to document that's true before you could invoke the 2001 AUMF to go to attack somebody in, let's say, Nigeria or Morocco or you know some new place with a group that calls itself by some new name, but we suspect may still be an offshoot of Al Qaeda, you know, the group that carried mm-hmm. out the attacks that led to the AUMF. That would be a very simple, limited fix that would only address one small part of the whole problem you and I are talking about today. And then the other thing I would offer, I would like to see some kind of legislation that would require a number of sign-offs on any uh, preemptive use of nuclear weapons. And uh, I don't think the president should have the uh, authority to do that on his or her own, regardless of whether it's Trump or Bush or The other Bush or Obama or Clinton or Warren, I don't trust any of them enough to put the future of civilization in their hands. And um, so I would like to see various debates about how you would do that. Would you want to have a certain fraction of the congressional leadership that has to at least abstain from a, a veto? Would you have to have certain parts of the Supreme Court, a certain number of justices allow this. You know, I mean, it's so momentous, the idea of using nuclear weapons. And right now, presidents could say, hey, I'm doing it in less than the 60 days that are allowed to me under the War Powers Act, and I'm the commander in chief, according to the Constitution, so I have the right to do this. I I think it would be a preposterous argument to make, but a lot of contemporary presidents have made um, arguments that I think really stretch the Constitution and the War Powers Act already. So that's the other thing I would most like to see addressed there's still other problems we haven't talked about like you know um how would we handle a war in korea if let's say things fall apart and we decide we want to use preemptive military force against their long-range missile launchers and a president says that's just going to take a day i can do that in 24 hours i don't need a war powers act except there's a distinct possibility you're going to have an all-out korean war as a result because the north koreans might respond to us and then we respond to them etc so uh, you know on that kind of issue, and China
0: has nothing to say about that, or has no thoughts about that. So,
1: <laughs> right, exactly. So on that one, I think we need at least the kind of debate we had before each Iraq war. And uh, you know, again, I was relatively content with those with the uh, processes we had before the Iraq wars. They might not have produced the right decision, depending on your vantage point, but they were pretty serious, full debates with with open votes by both houses of Congress in both 1991 and 2002. So, um, in that regard, um, you know that 's the system that I think we need to somehow codify and make sure we perpetuate for any possible new wars
0: mm. well, finally, I mean, the one thing I did want to ask you before before we let you go, speaking with uh, Michael o 'Hanlon of the brookings Institute um, let 's take uh, Syria and, 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 and pulling the troops out. I mean, uh, President Trump pulling the troops out, sort of uh, just drawing the wrath of the, of, of the Kurds and many in Congress. That sort of action, I mean, it seems like Congress is exclusively on the sidelines. Now, I know we don't want to micromanage, but, is it I mean, are those kinds of things just part of our processes and there's nothing we can do about them?
1: That's a good question. I don't know how—you uh, know, we, the Congress did write— A provision in the 2018 defense bill, a year ago, that required the president to get permission if he wanted to pull major U.S. forces out of Korea. Because there we had a treaty commitment, uh, we had a long-standing presence that Congress had funded through many presidencies, and Congress thought it might be able to uh, put put down its foot and say, uh, you know, President Trump, you shall not Pull forces out below a certain number, like you've been saying you might want to. Now, I'm not sure if if that case had gone to the Supreme Court, if Trump had disagreed with Congress and said, my powers of commander-in-chief allow me to move forces around, I don't know what the Supreme Court would have done. And if they had declined the case, as they often do in this sort of situation, what would have been the net effect? If if Trump had called up and given an order for U.S. troops to come down below 22,000, would the military have complied? I Probably yes, I would say. So then Congress would have had the next step. That's the sort of thing where um, you know, uh, Congress probably could try to use its clout on something like Syria, where it was much more a series of tactical decisions, there's no treaty, um, there's no agreed long-term goal, uh, even though I totally disagree with the way President Trump has handled this the last two weeks. I think it's a pretty difficult case for Congress to get involved in, except the way it has through the bully pulpit and through criticism of Trump, which I think may have actually now persuaded the president to yet again rethink his approach. So maybe that's the only role that Congress could play on that sort of, you know, sort of a smaller um, and and more fast-moving event.
0: Mm -hmm. Michael Hammond. Brookings Institute, thank you, sir, for taking the time. I know you were in you were route as you took the time to speak with us today on the Public Morality, sir.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: That was Michael O'Hanlon. Stay tuned as I continue my conversation with Sam Berger from the Center for American Progress on the Public Morality. Welcome back. To continue the discussion on the roles of the executive and legislative branches of government as it relates to matters of foreign policy, I'm joined by Sam Berger, Vice President of Democracy and Government Reform for the Center for American Progress. Sam Berger, welcome to The Public Morality.
2: Thanks so much for having me on. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, when it comes to foreign policy um, as, as is outlined in the Constitution and in, in the actions by Congress. Does Congress even matter?
2: Congress certainly has a role to play. I mean, the, the founders always understood that there was going to be a, a separation and balancing, a, you know, checks and balances, separation of powers. There is going to be a role for the various branches to play, and, and Congress certainly plays a significant one. Obviously, um, the executive branch has a lot of, the president has a lot of, uh, leeway when it comes to foreign policy, but even something as simple as uh, the money that goes to the military has to be appropriated by Congress. Um, they're actively involved in that decisions about you know what kind of you know where that money is being spent, how that money is being spent. And there's an incredibly close relationship between the Department of Defense um, and their oversight committees and their appropriators, um, and there's a lot of back and forth that that happens there. Um, you know, there's also of course, uh, well, Congress's efforts to try and reassert its own uh, authority with respect to declaring war, things of that nature. So there's, I think it's from a constitutional standpoint, there's obviously a, an important role for Congress to play. I think as a practical matter, uh, we've seen across a whole host of areas that the congressional role has been shrinking.
0: Mm-hmm. A whole host of areas. Um, can you cite can you some examples for our listeners, please?
2: Well, I mean, I think. In general, you've seen a a Congress that is less willing and and less able to act, um, and in some cases is actively trying to be dysfunctional. So, you know, take an example, you know, with um, uh, McConnell right now in the Senate, sort of refusing to really bring up any bills to kind of engage in any sort of legislative action. Um, But also, you've seen as presidents have claimed more authority, um, in part, you know, So Congress doesn't really protect its um, prerogatives as an institution, right? So you see Trump basically ignore the appropriations power. This is the, the authority that Congress has to decide what money can be spent on. And he's done it in a variety of ways, not just with the withholding of money to Ukraine that's the subject of the current impeachment inquiry, but also um, during the government shutdown when he was illegally spending money to try and help himself politically, or most egregiously with this um, fake emergency that he declared at the border in order to subvert uh, congressional will and and divert military funding uh, to this vanity project, basically, campaign prop. And the problem is, is that members of Congress don't think of themselves as being members of Congress as much as they think of themselves as being members of a particular party. So the president's supporters in the House and Senate are totally fine with him subverting congressional authority if they think it's advancing uh, his goals. And that's a real problem, and it's something that the founders didn't anticipate.
0: See, you just touched on something I think that's very important, um, is that if my side does it, Sam, it's fine. If your side does it, it's an abomination. And Mm -hmm. can we move... From that paradigm, is it even possible? Right? Is it, has it always been there?
2: Well, I think it's exacerbated to a tremendous degree. I mean, I, I think when you look at what's happening right now with the conservative movement and with the Republican Party, you've seen them abandon basically everything they claim to hold dear, uh, with, I think, the sole exception of um, lowering tax rates on the wealthy but everything else has been tossed aside. You know, this sort of notion of uh, limited government. Well, Trump says he can do whatever he wants. He can ignore the Constitution. This notion of a strong military. You know, Trump is listening to foreign autocrats over his own military and intelligence agencies. And you know, you saw this weakness with Turkey, where basically, you know, the president was unable to even stand up to Turkey, uh, and then created this this whole foreign policy disaster. Um, you know, obviously, the notion of traditional values when that you know Trump isn't living in, in any sort of sense is, has also gone on the wayside, and it really seems to be about power. And I do think there's an asymmetry here. Of course, there's no question uh, that this is something that affects both parties, but there is a true, true asymmetry. Look, you know, just look at what happened with uh, Senator Franken, right? Senator Franken, uh, Al Franken, uh, Senator from Minnesota, exactly. He was pushed out because people said, No, your behavior is unacceptable, even though you're on my team. We're not going to allow that. Now, uh, you know, and I think it's sort of hard to imagine something like that happening um, on the Republican side because you see, you know, every day Trump engages in another uh, attack on American values, another effort to kind of undermine our democratic system. And there are incredibly few elected Republicans willing to stand up and say no, willing to stand up for our country. Mm. Um, and so I think that is quite concerning, but I think it's important to recognize that imbalance. And I think only by recognizing that imbalance can we begin to have conversations about how you might address it.
0: Mm. Well, when you just gave that um, scenario, it, was, uh, it brought to mind that in the in the legislative branch you have um, – Five hundred and thirty five cats uh, that need to be herded and in the executive branch you have this one lone figure. So in that sense it makes it it makes it difficult in certain areas at times to truly be coequal branches of government. But especially with the party implications that you just talked about. Yeah, I mean there's
2: no question that you need a strong executive branch to take action and to execute on things. I mean, that's really, uh, and when I say here, I mean strong in the sense of being, you know, focused, effective, things of that nature. Um, it, there, is a, there is a difference, um, and it's not just that it's sort of, you know, one person making decisions versus uh, 535, um, because, in fact, that's not really, the government isn't one person as much as, you know, Trump might seem to act like it is. It's an enormous group of, of career professionals who are, you know, doing their best to advance uh, uh, advance American priorities at home and abroad. Um, but the difference is, is that everyone in the executive branch is on the same team in normal times, focused on the same sort of, of uh, uh, goals, whereas in Congress you have competing sides. You know, people are sort of like, well, you know, the country should be run like a business. Well, imagine if you, you know, you had a business and your board of directors Uh, half of them hated the other half and knew that if they made the business and and believed if they made the business do poorly that year, they were likely to get more power in the subsequent year, right? That's really what – that's the sort of McConnell, Mitch McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate. That's the attitude that he brought um, uh, to the Republican Party, or at least most clearly exemplified. You know, remember when he said his goal was to make Obama one-term president, Mm -hmm. and he was very clear that doing nothing – stopping things from getting better was good politically for Republicans, even if it was bad for the country and bad for people. And so that's what he did. And I think it's very challenging when you have, you know, people in power who care only about power and not really about improving people's lives, who can't ever put aside the partisanship and just do something on behalf of the American people. And that's why I think this distinction is really important. You know, we have a system that's so radically skewed so rigged towards uh encouraging extreme conservative partisanship that it really ends up with a a party or party leaders that are sort of even divorced from their own voters um you know they're they're isolated from many of the american people because of redistricting uh campaign finance problems mean that they're basically relying on huge donors and taking their cues from them instead of their constituents And this drives even further polarization, makes it even more challenging, which is why I think one of the first things that we need to do um, when we have a new president and a new Congress is to enact significant structural reforms to try and fix these problems, to try and create a system that's more responsive to the American people and therefore is going to deliver results that the American people actually want.
0: Well, Sam, I, I I gotta say that that was a um, quite depressing soliloquy. In that, <laughs> in that, what you described sounded anything but the possibility of co-equal branches of government functioning, and in, in, not even in a harmonious harmonious tone. Just period. So, thank you. Um, but
2: <laughs> well, I think that I mean I think that the. Uh, the the point that I'm making is that it's not really an issue of the structure of Congress and the structure of the executive branch mm-hmm. so much as it's an issue of the structure of the system and the types of people that then result uh, – as a result of that end up getting elected and exercising that power and particularly, particularly the asymmetric way in which the conservative movement has sort of taken over the Republican Party and kind of placed – obtaining power and maintaining power at the center – or really at its only core value, Um, and that that's made it much more difficult to to have compromise, to have sort of engagement. I mean, the notion that you have elected officials who can't say it's wrong to invite a foreign power to interfere in our elections, I mean, that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. The founders, when they created one of their primary concerns was foreign interference in the United States. They created a whole host of ways to try and limit that threat. And, in fact, the impeachment power is created in part to deal with that very thing, a president who is under foreign influence or, in, or inviting foreign influence and thereby undermining you know, uh, democratic self-governance in this country.
0: You know, I'm thinking back to... Uh... 20, I think it was 2012, 2013, right around there. A book by, uh, written by uh, Norman Ornstein at, at American mm-hmm. Enterprise and Thomas Mann at Brookings was it, wor- you know, worse than it looks. Mm-hmm. And I hear you replicating uh, uh, many of those arguments uh, is even more pronounced since they f- you know, first wrote that piece. That it's, mm-hmm. it has gotten that the gold popes have are moving. Even further away, and when one party moves those goalposts, it's really difficult to have any kind of semblance of what the founders at least envisioned.
2: Well, and it it makes you know it puts a lot of pressure on the other party. And I think an interesting thing you see uh, the Trump administration now ignoring subpoenas, just ignoring them, saying no, we don't we don't have to listen to anything that you say. Um, and so then it raises a question: Well, what's the next? democratic administration going to do uh traditionally both parties would reply to subpoenas engage in an accommodation process where they worked between congress and the executive branch to figure out you know congress wouldn't get everything it wanted but it would get some of it it would get to talk to some people but not others it would get some documents and not others it would get them not quite as fast as it necessarily wanted but it would get them Uh, but in a world in which subpoenas only apply to democratic presidents and not republican ones you know, that's not really a tenable world to live in. And so when you break down these norms, when you just say, no, we're not, we're not going to listen to this at all, it makes it very hard. And a norm can only exist when you have everyone agreeing to it. You know, otherwise, it's just a handcuffs. And it's very hard to tell any political party to put handcuffs on itself. And so I think those are real issues that we're going to see playing out, this uh, ignoring of longstanding norms, is going to survive beyond Trump. It's going to do damage beyond Trump. And you know, I think one of the things, um, because the Trump presidency will end if not next year, then then after a second term. But uh, there's going to be long-standing damage, not just in the foreign policy realm, which I think you know, people have sort of have rightly paid a lot of attention to, but domestically. And it's not easy to bring back norms once they're shattered, and particularly if there doesn't appear to be any sense. Uh, that the other side is willing to abide by those same norms.
0: Well, earlier, earlier in the broadcast, we had uh, Michael Hanlon from the Brookings Institute on, and I posed the question to him, but now it, it seems appropriate to also pose it to you, who's so already sort of alluded to it, that is it, we might say, for for lack of a better term, a loophole uh, in the Constitution and the Founders' vision, uh you know think about John Jay and Hamilton and Madison and when they wrote the fellows papers that this whole system is based on an assumption that individuals want it to work and what happens if you if that's not a priority for the system to work it, this, this does this does this then the whole project sort of collapses does it not
2: well, I, I, would, I think that that's exactly right, except I don't think that that's a flaw in the Constitution. I think that's a common denominator for any sort of common action. Right? That's the same thing with any society. Any society relies on the vast majority of its members complying with the rules that are set forth, feeling that those rules are fair, uh, that they have a, a, a good shot at building a good life. And when that doesn't happen... People start to break rules. Um, they start to shirk responsibilities. They start to take a whole host of actions that undermine the success of that that country, that community. And so, I think you know that is a real concern. The fraying of these sorts of bonds, the the inability to put country before party, really does have a lot of long term risks. And I think these accumulated months of Republicans refusing to stand up to Trump again and again and again and forcing not only themselves, but their supporters to try and justify for some reason why this is okay, when I think in their hearts they know it isn't, creates this situation in which uh, a cognitive dissonance that I think can be resolved in ways that are really troubling to the country, mm-hmm. right, can be resolved by people saying, well, it's more important that Republicans win that, that America's America does good. That America does well. Uh, and that's that's very concerning. And I think that that's, you know, one of the things that the next president is going to have to try and address um, because of the real damage that this continued exposure to kind of the toxicity of the Trump administration and the toxicity of, his, uh, the, elect- of the response by his supporters in, in elected office is creating.
0: Yeah, no, no, and you make you make a great point, and and I, and I was one of the things I was thinking about when I when I posed my question to you was uh, doing Watergate. Um, even when Nixon was ordered by the courts to give over the tapes, um, and I, he had to know one of those tapes was quite damaging, even though he tried to erase a portion of one, he turned over the tapes. Mm-hmm. He didn't. He didn't say. As Andrew Jackson said about uh, uh, John Marshall, John Marshall's made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Nixon turned over, and I'm just saying that. In, in that sense, are you concerned that we're even post? I mean, guess post Nixon, post Reagan, post Clinton, we're just in a place now we, 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 we've never we've never been.
2: Well, I think that that is absolutely true. I think that. Um, one of the most concerning things we've seen is the extent to which Trump has basically uh, demeaned and devalued core American values and the extent to which his supporters have gone along with it. Things like attacking the press, things like denying aspects of the Constitution, things like Trying to uh, change the words on the Statue of Liberty. These are the sorts of you know the sorts of things. These would be hyperbole. If you had said this three years ago, this is what's going to happen during the Trump administration. Folks would have said, "Look, hey, let's try and keep it reasonable. I'm sure that there'll be problems, but he's, no one would ever do those things." But they've all happened. They've all happened relatively recently, right? You don't even have to. I mean, this is sort of like, "What's your your your?" Uh, top 10 list from the last, well, top 100 list from the last couple months. And so um, I think it really, it is, it's incredibly concerning. It's something that I think folks really need to be thinking about. And I actually think that, I will say that um, there does seem to be an acknowledgement by um, some conservative thinkers who have broken with Trump. Uh, they, they recognize that that danger Uh, and the need to take steps. But sadly, when it comes to elected officials, you've seen very little of that. And in fact, the one person that that has taken that stand has been drummed out of the Republican Party, Justin Amash, a, a congressman who rightly said that Trump should be impeached for his broad range of impeachable conduct, but, you know, including the obstruction of justice that he committed in trying to undermine the Mueller investigation.
0: And representative Amash is uh, represented from uh, Grand Rap, the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, talking with uh, Sam Berger of the Center for American Progress, um, and Sam, when when you when you. When you think about this current trajectory uh you sort of alluded and i'm going to have you expand on it in in in, because we started this conversation about matters of foreign policy but 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 the, the central question sort of bleeds in other areas um is there a way to put the genie back in the bottle is there a way to undo the damage because as you rightly state no president regardless of power is willing to relinquish any powers uh Set forth by his or her predecessor um unless they're taken away, so can we put this genie back in the bottle
2: So I think that the post Watergate moment is a really excellent uh precedent to consider. you know I think a lot of folks know um that there were some steps taken uh after Nixon to try and address his abuses of power, you know most obviously um uh creating uh, uh independent uh counsel independent you know, special prosecutor uh, which was eventually lapsed. But um, there was actually a wide ranging set of reforms that took place. You had the Ethics and Government Act, which this was a part but it applied you know real ethics standards to government. You had uh steps taken to regularize the budget process because Nixon had abused that. You had the War Powers Act uh failed attempt to try and um, limit further uh uh Encroachment of the executive branch into into Congress's war-making powers. You had the um, uh, you had the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which tried to limit what foreign corporations or what uh, sorry domestic corporations were doing abroad. You had um, uh, uh, you had uh, FISA. You know the steps taken to try and limit domestic surveillance. Um, you had major campaign finance reforms. You had this whole range of really significant reforms that were taken. Um, and uh, things like the Privacy Act, you know, things like the Presidential Records Act, civil service reform, all of this stuff taking place in an effort to try and push back um, uh, the accumulation of power that Nixon had taken into the executive branch. And I think after this presidency, we're going to have another moment like that. But the problem here is that it's not just one person, right? It's a whole system that right now is, viewed in a way that that, uh, drives towards partisanship, towards uh, extreme points of view, away from consensus and and away from basically the American people. And that's why what we really need to do is we need to have big structural forms that get at things like gerrymandering, that get at things like voter suppression, that get at things like uh, the uh, vast amounts of dark money that are uh, floating into our politics, um, that get at some of these really big issues and try and level the playing field, try and, and make it easier for people that are actually working for their constituents to get elected, and to try and make it so that people uh, need to and want to be more responsive to their constituents instead of their largest donors. And those sorts of changes can have a real impact, right? This is not a situation that, that we can't ever recover from, but we need to recognize that it's not just a, a matter of one person or one election it's a matter of a whole system that is designed to drive us apart that is designed to drive elected officials to be less responsive to the american people to drive conflict and and we need to basically fix that and there are a lot of common sense solutions out there you know hr one a bill supported uh, that passed in the house and, and that uh had broad uh support in the senate on the democratic side takes a lot of those steps, um, and so passing something like that, making that the first-order priority is really critical to trying to change this culture, change the dynamics by changing the incentives.
0: You you, you mentioned, when you started that, you, you mentioned um, the post-Watergate um, enactments, and you mentioned the uh, independent council, uh, which... Um, is most probably most famously uh, post Watergate was Ken Starr, mm-hmm. and it was expired. The Independent Counsel expired under uh, Bill Clinton, and and we can go into the reasons uh, at another date why he did it, his motivation. But that it, you could also make, could you not make the argument that that it, the suspension or letting the the, the Independent Counsel expire sort of comes back to haunt those who thought there was some there there with the Robert Mueller investigations vis-a-vis this president.
2: Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that this is a really challenging uh, set of questions, which is basically how do you investigate a rogue president? And I think that, um, you know, that there are, I think that we've learned a lot from watching what happened with Mueller, I, there are some good policy suggestions out there to try and improve things. I think it is a real question about whether you want to create uh, or recreate the sort of Ken Star situation, um, and, and it, I just I think this is honestly this is a tough thing to figure out. But I think it's clear that just having um, a sort of not very well protected um, prosecutor within the Department of Justice be responsible for investigating the president doesn't get you good results, right? You can see everything that Mueller was doing was sort of predicated in part on the notion that he could get fired, depending on what he did, depending on where he stepped out of line. Um, And so I think, you know, and at the same time, he was limited by, as he himself said, he was limited by Department of Justice regulations that said that he couldn't even prosecute the president which raises interesting questions about, you know, how how he was able, you know, basically how you approach an investigation when you're told no matter what crimes you find, you can't take any action. Um, and so I think there's going to be a lot for people to think through in this space. Some folks are already doing it. Um, but it's challenging, and quite frankly, it's challenging because it's hard to set up a system that, says, uh, that assumes the president's a crook. Like so, so much of what Trump gets away with, so much of the things where people say, well, it's a crime, except it doesn't really apply to the president, is that we don't really design our um, system to assume that there's going to be a wildly corrupt president constantly seeking to break the law. We assume that there's going to be a president who has at least some uh, uh, some inclination to follow the oath of office and ensure that the laws are faithfully executed. And when we don't have that, it creates a whole host of problems in a in a whole host of areas. And you can't just correct for that because you need to have presidents that have authority and power to make decisions around things like you know uh, classifying national security information. There are always backstops that can be created, but ultimately there has to be the elected official making judgment calls. And so when we elect somebody that's corrupt and willing to corrupt all the levers of of government for their own purposes. That creates a lot of challenges, some of which can be mitigated, but many of which, unfortunately, cannot. Finally, except of course, except of course, through the use of the impeachment power to remove that person.
0: Yeah. Finally, you know, I I can I can see imagine someone listening to this to this conversation, who supported President Obama, and I could hear them saying, "Sam, you're that's exactly, you know, how we feel. Um, You're speaking for us." Conversely, I can see someone that supports uh, President Trump saying, "Well, that's how we felt. Everything Sam said is how we felt eight years ago." What do you say to both of those polarities?
2: Well, I mean, I think at a certain point we have to have we have to live in a, a common shared reality, and I think that any suggestion that what we're seeing from Donald Trump is echoes of what we saw from President Obama. It simply doesn't stand up to any scrutiny. I mean, what we're seeing from Donald Trump is the worst, most corrupt administration in our lifetimes, maybe in the history of the United States. A set of circumstances that's worse than Watergate, the worst political scandal, uh, which become synonymous with political scandal in this country. And so I think those kinds of comparisons... Uh, seem more like an effort to justify to oneself the actions that were taken rather than any kind of serious engagement with the facts. I mean, take simply this notion of czars. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a big issue around President Obama creating all these quote unquote czars,
0: yeah, I remember that. Um,
2: which were advisors in the White House. President Trump doesn't even do that. He just has acting officials everywhere. He says out loud, I like this because I don't have to go through the Senate. Right. And no one has said a peep about that. And so I do think part of the issue here is a little bit of projection. People claim that Obama did this. People say that Obama did this. And folks aren't following the facts closely. And then Trump actually does the very thing that was falsely claimed about President Obama. And people are like, oh, well, maybe everyone kind of does this. And so I do think it's, that is a problem. That's a bigger problem. It has to do with our media environment, the way in which people get their information and, and the things that they end up believing. But I think if you look at the actual facts, there's no comparison between these two people. And I think when folks look back at this with a little bit of time and distance in history, you know, that kind of comparison will seem laughable. Because, you know, Barack Obama was the least scandal-ridden president of our lifetime, and Donald Trump is the most corrupt and scandalous president we've ever had. So, you know, I just think that uh, with any bit of critical distance will make that clear.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle, On Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.